Lord, we pray that you would uh, speak to our hearts. God, we want to continue to worship you by showing honor to your word. You have decided to give it to us, and so we want to receive it. So speak to our hearts, God. Teach us, draw us closer to you, and it's in your name we pray. So 2 Thessalonians is the sequel, if you will, to 1 Thessalonians. And the, the letters to the church in the city of Thessalonica are written to kind of understand the context. Go back in your mind to Acts uh, chapter 16 and 17 when Paul goes on his second missionary journey. And what you see if you're reading through there and you're watching the church get birthed in Thessalonica, you realize that this is a church that was born out of very hard times. These were very hard times for Paul personally. Um, he, had, he had just broken up with his best friend in ministry. He had just gotten beaten up in Philippi and that was after a, a period where he is trying to seek the will of the Lord and you're watching in the book of Acts and he's just, he's really not making any traction. So he winds up in Philippi in a sense because it's the only direction he could go. And then he winds up in Thessalonica because he gets driven out of Philippi. And so he's in the city of Thessalonica for three weeks. And in the space of three weeks, he plants a church and then he's driven out of Thessalonica. So this church is birthed out of hardship. Paul's experiencing it coming into it. The church experienced it from the outset because their pastor gets driven off within three weeks. I doubt the rest of the church then just was able to kick back and party. Um, so this, this is a, a hard church. This is a church that has been through a lot, but Paul wants to encourage this church. And this church is, in spite of their hardships, or rather because of their hardships, this church is healthy. This church is excited about what the Lord is doing. And Paul's exhortations to the church, by and large, are, hey, you know what? Keep doing what you're doing. There's a, there's a little bit of correction. They're still human. But Paul is really writing these letters probably just a few months after, or possibly just a few months after he had left the church to try and encourage these believers there. So First Thessalonians, he talked about, you know, just how encouraged he is by their testimony and that it's going out in all the world, how much he wants to be there with them, how blessed he was when Titus said, hey, they're doing well. Um, and he also encouraged him to keep focusing on the return of Christ. And we talked about it the last couple of weeks. We'll talk about it again tonight. It's an interesting idea that if Paul had three weeks to start a church, he decided to place a big point of his emphasis on the fact that Jesus Christ is coming back. And we might not think of that as the primary doctrine that you would want to teach if you had only three weeks, right? We're going through, we're going to, if we wrap this up tonight, we'll have gone through all of the letters to the Thessalonians in three weeks, okay? So that amount of time between when we ended Colossians and when we'll start 1 Timothy is the amount of time Paul was in this city. But in that amount of time, a healthy church is birthed because of the working of the Holy Spirit. But a big part of what makes this church healthy is that they are focused on Christ. They are focused on the return of Christ. They are looking for Jesus Christ to come back quickly. And that is driving their behavior. And so Paul is going to exhort them in that. He's going to sort of correct them a few degrees. You know, they're starting to lean out a little and he's going to pull them back in. But his goal with this letter is to just encourage the church. And so as Christians, if you're a Christian in the room, you should understand that the goal of this letter is to encourage you, all right? If you are not a Christian, we'll get to that. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, chapter one, verse one. Silvanus is another name for Silas. To the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul opened his letter like almost every one of his other letters. 
He says, grace and peace. And we've said it before, but you know what? Paul felt the need to repeat it multiple times, so we'll repeat it multiple times. And that is that grace and peace are what Paul always uses to introduce the letter. But grace always comes first because peace is not something that we generate. It's something that we receive as a reality in response to the grace of God. Grace always comes before peace in Paul's letter. The grace of God is always going to precede the peace of God in our lives. And so if we are ever at a point where we do not have peace, the solution is not to manufacture it. The solution is to go back and understand grace. So blessed of the church, he says, grace and peace. Sorry, the thing is not liking my ear. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3. And we're going to read from verse 3 all the way down to verse 10. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who did not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. So it's a bit of a long sentence, but Paul liked long sentences. So he says, all right, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, because your faith grows and because the love of every one of you abounds towards each other. And then he goes on and he starts describing the fact that this church is walking through tribulation. The church is walking through hardship. And he's praising God for the fact that the church is growing in that. And hardship and suffering in the Christian world are one of those things that we sometimes wish wasn't a reality, but it's given to us as a fact. Um, It says, all who desire to live a godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Suffering, hard times, hardship, persecution, they are just guaranteed parts of walking with the Lord, okay? But we need to understand what they are then, because the whole world goes through hard times. Now, sometimes it seems like, you know, boy, this guy is just living for himself and he's walking in sin and just everything goes right with him. No, he's miserable in his own right. He has no peace in his life, right? Um, The whole world goes through hard things. Tragedy happens to Christians and non-Christians, right? But what happens with a Christian is that all of a sudden there's a context because suffering and persecution do things in the life of a Christian. They don't just happen. You know, sometimes when when something happens, we're like, well, why would this tragedy happen? How could anything good come from this? And the Lord says, no, there is good coming. There is good in this. And so there's a couple things that Paul references in this paragraph. He says, your faith grows exceedingly. Suffering is building up this church's faith because they have to dig into the Lord because if they are leaning into their own strength, it is going to fail. So the suffering is forcing them to lean into the Lord. The love of every one of you all abounds towards each other, he says. Their love towards each other is growing because they aren't getting distracted by little things, right? Very often, I mean, just think about a family. Think about a group of siblings. Most of the loudest arguments are over the smallest things, right? You know what I'm talking about. Uh, The loudest arguments usually are like 
the really, really dumb things. And that's true in the church. That's true among Christians. And persecution, if, if, if the question is, are you a Christian or are you not? And if you are, I'm going to beat you up. Then all of a sudden, it really doesn't become a question of, are you a Baptist or are you a charismatic? Or are you reformed or are you not? Or are you whatever? It's, are you a Christian? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? And so a lot of sort of second, there's a lot of good reasons to have strong convictions on those things, okay? But a lot of secondary issues, if we start going through persecution, they just really don't matter. Because we need to, because we come together as believers and say, hey, you know what? I'm a Christian, you're a Christian. Together we can seek the glory of the Lord. And that's all we need. And so it unites them together. But also, in verse 5, he says, this is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God <clears throat> for which you also suffer. Now, if you read it fast, um, or if you read it in English sometimes, uh, it kind of looks like he's saying your suffering makes you worthy to enter the kingdom of God. That's not what he's saying. The idea is the suffering is making you fit. Okay, so if you were to think of it in athletics, um, if you want to enter a, a weightlifting competition, you're going to lift weights. And what are you going to do to get ready for the competition? You're going to add more weights, right? And lifting weights is, in a sense, like the absolute dumbest thing a human being could ever do, right? Like, you're going to pick up a piece of metal and you're going to set it back down. Like, there's no, you know, there's, there's no visible gain. Like, why on earth? I mean, except for the fact that, you know, half of this room is men and we want to know exactly who ranks where in, in the power struggle. But why on earth would I want to pick up a piece of metal and then set it back down? It's because it makes you fit. It grows something in you, which is called muscle. And spiritually, the same idea is there in that hard things make you fit. Hard things uh, are going to burn off some extra fat, spiritually speaking. They're going to they're gonna get you ready for the race. And so hard times in the life of a Christian, that doesn't make them any less hard. But we can understand as believers, hey, you know what? The Lord is using this to build me up. He's preparing me for something. He's, he's getting me in shape because he's called, Paul uses the metaphor later on in scripture of running a race. And if you're gonna run a race, you probably ought to be in shape. And so hard times are often a spiritual means of getting us in shape, so to speak. So he goes on in verse 11 and he says, therefore we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, therefore we pray that God would fulfill the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. Suffering is an opportunity for growth. Paul is praying it for this church. He says, hey, I'm, I want you to know that I'm encouraged with how you're handling the suffering that you're going through. And I want you to know that I'm praying that the Lord uses it as a growth opportunity in your life. And that's how we should respond as Christians. Because life will be hard. We're going to interact with people. If we're not going through something hard, we are going to be interfacing with somebody who's going through something hard. And the Lord wants to use it to grow them to grow us so we can be built up in our relationship with him. So chapter one, he's encouraging them. Chapter two, he's now going to kind of step back and explain some things. He's going to clarify some things 
that he, he had evidently taught while he was in the city for three weeks, and now he is going to elaborate a little bit. He did this a little bit in First Thessalonians. He's going to do it again now. Now, brethren, he says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come. Well, we're going to just, we'll stop there. Paul says, all right, listen. As far as the return of Christ goes, I don't want you to be shaken in mind or troubled. All right? So, when we talk about end times, when we talk about the return of the Lord, when we talk about the, the great tribulation and the millennial kingdom and all these things, what's the first step? Don't be shaken in mind. Don't be troubled. These are not supposed to be scary things for the Christian. And it helps, I think, sometimes. I was listening to a pastor earlier this year. He was teaching through the book of Revelation. And he said, the book of Revelation is really easy to understand if you understand one thing. And that's that it's the book of Revelation, not the book of Revelations. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. The whole book is about revealing Jesus Christ. It is not about the mark of the beast and the Antichrist and, and what does the number 666 really mean and what is the three frogs coming out of the mouth of the prophet. And those things are all there. But the book is about the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so when we talk about the return of the Lord, it's important to understand that. What are we talking about? We're talking about the Lord making himself more obvious. And that's a comforting thought. That's a good thing. That's not something that should scare us, right? The ability to see Jesus Christ more clearly is not a scary thought. It should be an exciting thought, right? So this is not to trouble us. Verse three, let no one deceive you by any means. For that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshiped so that he sits as God in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. Okay, so here we go. We're going to kind of dive into this. I'll try and do this in articulate fashion, but no guarantees. So he says, I don't want you to think that the day of Christ had come. And then as he's explaining it, what he's calling the day of Christ is something different than what he calls in 1 Thessalonians, the day of the Lord. Because the day of Christ, he says, the day of Christ cannot come until the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed. We'll get into that in a second. But he says the day of Christ can't come until these two things happen. The day of the Lord can come at any moment. So we're talking about two separate events here, okay? So there's emphasis in Scripture that the day of the Lord could happen at any point in time. The Lord could come back at any point in time. But Paul here says that the day of Christ won't come unless the falling away comes first and unless the man of sin is revealed. So what I believe he's talking about is the difference between the rapture of the church and the day of Christ. And so we talked about this last week. You can go back and listen to it again if you want. But when we look at prophecy regarding the end times, we try to interpret it as literally as possible. Because the vast majority of all prophecies relating to the first coming of Jesus Christ were fulfilled very literally. Even ones that we wouldn't have been able to understand as being literal had we lived before they came. Right? We said it last week. The idea that a virgin gives birth to a son just isn't literally possible unless God decides to make it literally possible. And so some of the things that we read about regarding the end times, we look at them and say, I don't think that's literally possible. But you know what we can say is, well, 
there's no reason to assume that the Lord has changed his mind all of a sudden. So I believe that the prophecies regarding the end times are going to be fulfilled as literally as we can possibly read them. There are just times when it explains, like, this is a metaphor. I saw a sign, or this is like. But there's words that'll cue us into, hey, this is not given as literal. But pretty much everywhere else in prophecy, if you can read it and say, I'm going to take it as if it's going to be fulfilled literally, it oftentimes winds up making way more sense. And so he says, all right, so we're talking about the day of Christ. Now, we said last week, and we'll actually talk about it probably on Sunday, uh, getting into Daniel 12, but the idea is that you have the day of the Lord, where Jesus Christ comes and raptures the church. All Christians are suddenly taken off of the face of the earth, and then you have what's called the Great Tribulation, and the Great Tribulation will go on for seven years. For seven years, it'll be really, for the first half of that, the world will think they finally got everything they want. They got a one world government, they've got one world leader who's perfect, who's great, and then, about ha- and then at the halfway mark, he's going to declare himself to be God. And, and all, all the world is going gonna, is gonna to just start breaking apart in all kinds of ways. But at the end of that seven year period, Jesus Christ comes back to earth, he sets up a kingdom, he, he throws Satan into the, he binds Satan with a chain for a thousand years, and for a thousand years we will get to live on earth with Christ and in the way that he designed the world to run. We'll get a thousand years to experience what he had planned for in the Garden of Eden. All right? But we're talking about, so there's two different days that we're talking about. But that, and I'm emphasizing it because it's really important. Because one could happen any moment. And one, Paul says, can't happen until two things. Until the falling away and until the man of sin is revealed. Who's the man of sin? The man of sin is what we call the Antichrist. First John talks about there have been a bunch of Antichrist. Anybody or any idea that is opposed to Jesus Christ is Antichrist. Okay? But there's going to be one man specifically who is known as the Antichrist. He's going to be a man who rises to power, who becomes the ruler of the entire world, who sets himself up as God and decides to actually go to war against God. And he's called here the man of sin. That has to happen before the day of Christ, before Christ returns to set up his millennial kingdom. The falling away is going to come first. Now, some people think that the falling away here is a direct argument for the rapture of the church. Some people say it's really kind of ambiguous in the Greek to decide if that's accurate or not. I'd say it doesn't really matter. It doesn't need to happen. It doesn't need to be a proof text for the rapture because there's plenty of other context. But the falling away, the Greek word is apostasia or where we get the word apostasy. Like, turning from the truth is the idea. And so, part of what's going to come is there's going to be a mass wave of people turning from truth. People turning away from what the Lord declares to be true. And those two things have to happen before the day of Christ. Paul goes on in verse 5. He says, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. So Paul says, all right, so back up, chapter 2. Don't be troubled. The day of Christ will not come until the falling away comes and until the man of sin is revealed. And now he says... You know what is restraining. 
The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Who is he? He is not the church because the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. The church is written of in the feminine. He is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is holding back right now lawlessness on earth. He is holding back. Jesus said the Holy Spirit comes to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. What keeps the vast majority of people in this world, I mean, think about, okay, we, we, we panic whenever there's, uh, you know, a mass act of, an act of mass violence. But the reality is it's more of a miracle that those don't happen 10 times as frequently. Because the reality is the vast majority of people still live with a, with a semblance of what they call a conscience. They have an idea of what's right and wrong, and it may be a skewed idea, but they have at least an idea of there are certain things that are right and certain things that are wrong, and there are certain lines that I shouldn't cross personally, okay? They're being held in check by the Holy Spirit. There's, a, there's a, an agenda, a demonic agenda, to try and unite the world under one government to oppose the Lord. That agenda is being held in check by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is holding things back. He is slowing things down. And he does it by his own power, but he also does it in, large, in, in part by through the church, right? Christians are a problem to the world agenda. We are a pain. We are a wrench in the gears. But he who restrains, Paul says, will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. There will be a point in time at which the Holy Spirit is going to be taken out of the way. And this, I think, is one of the greatest reasons to believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Because the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us. Jesus said in John 14 that he will never leave us. And so if the Holy Spirit is going to be taken away and he's never going to leave us, then really the best logical conclusion is that we're going to get taken away too. Right? Now, we are told in Revelation that there will be people who come to faith during the Great Tribulation and, and you know, the Holy Spirit enters the life of believers, so he will somehow in, in his way, he's going to be with those people, but it's going to be a different idea because there's going to be a sudden void of the Holy Spirit on earth. And imagine for a second, Paul says, then the lawless one will be revealed. If you take out every Christian... What do you think happens to a society? I mean, just, just kind of in your mind, go back and, and think about how many Christians are in law enforcement? How many Christians are in the military? How many Christians are in medicine? How many Christians are in any of the trades doing honest work? Right? We're not a Christian nation by any stretch. But understand that if every Christian in this country was gone, this country would have a serious rough go. Now, think about this. What if every person's conscience is suddenly gone? What if the idea of right and wrong are suddenly absent from the human heart? It's not going to take very long for the lawless one to be revealed, right? What keeps people from killing people right now is either fear of a justice system or the idea that I probably just shouldn't do it, right? Well, that idea is the Holy Spirit. What happens if the Holy Spirit is taken out of the way is the earth is going to fall into wickedness that we cannot imagine. It's, it's going to become so depraved so quickly that the world will be desperate 
for a one world leader to come into place and say, I can bring you peace if you just hand me everything. You hand me all your weapons, all your allegiance, all your votes, all your money, and I will bring you peace, and the world will be desperate. And so the Holy Spirit is going to be taken out of the way, and I believe we as the church are going to be taken out of the way with him, and then the lawless one will be revealed. Verse 9, Paul says, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Paul makes a really interesting point here as he's talking about there's going to be all kinds of deception among those who perish. And he says it's because they didn't receive the love of the truth. He doesn't say it's because they didn't receive the truth. They didn't receive the love of the truth. You know, sometimes we have this idea that everybody's looking for truth. That's not actually the case. There are people who absolutely know what the truth is and have no desire to, do, to walk in it. They have no love for the truth. Scripture says that the light shone in the darkness and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. There are people who know the right thing to do and do not do it. And we understand this. Okay, as Christians, we wrestle with this. We have a, a sin nature. Ours is, should be more well-honed because, not our sin nature, our awareness of our sin nature because the Holy Spirit is in us saying, hey, you know, I'm in you. You really don't need to do that. You really shouldn't be doing that. But if people refuse to love the truth, what are they going to do? They're going to then be vulnerable to strong delusion that they should believe the lie. The Antichrist will not bring world peace. But everybody will be happy to believe it. We'll just, we'll just delude ourselves into thinking this. Right? And, and you look at this. I mean, our world right now is already experiencing mass delusion. Our world is obsessed right now with the idea that you can change your gender, which is delusional. And I say that as graciously as I possibly can, but there's a reality, you know, if, if you want to stand up and say, we believe the science, the science says that chromosomes are, are stubborn little things. And you've either got an XX or an XY, and if, that has, if that's hard for you to understand, it's because you just don't know why. But gender is a real thing. That was so lame, wasn't it? It was. I, I knew it was going in, but I was too far in. I just had to go. Uh, but gender's kind of a persistent thing, but we have a, a culture that now says that is completely up to your interpretation. That's delusional. We have a culture that says three seconds after a child comes out of the womb, it's worth protecting, and three seconds before, it's not. That's delusional. Nothing changed. Right? It's, it's a pre-born baby versus a post-born baby. It's a baby. It's a human being. And the world says, no, 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 no. It's not. It's just women's health care. It's just, it's, you know, it's you choosing your own, it's taking care of your own body. No, it's not. It's, it's somebody else's body in there. Right? And to say, no, 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 it's all, it's all the same, that's, that's a delusion. The world buys into these right now. Imagine when the Holy Spirit is taken out of the way. The world is going to be ripe for mass delusion. And so the falling away will come and the man of sin will be revealed. So he says, Paul's, but Paul's exhortation to the church in this is, hey, remember, don't be troubled because we are going to be with the Lord. 
Verse 13, he says, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now, May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. So the day of Christ is coming. Okay? Back up in your minds. The day of Christ is coming. The Holy Spirit is going to be taken out of the way. Therefore, Paul says, stand fast. Therefore, hold on to what you were taught right? The return of Christ is not cause for panic. It's also not cause to say, hey, I'm going to get taken out of here. I can do whatever I want. It's cause to say, hey, I need to hold fast. Because if I deny the truth right now, I will be strongly suspect to delusion after the fact, right? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm sure there will be tons of people immediately after the rapture who say that's what they were talking about shoot and they receive the lord they surrender and 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 that's and the lord will save them but they are gonna go they're gonna go through hell right they're going to have their lives taken from them if they're going to hold true to the gospel and so paul says hey this isn't this isn't grounds to just start goofing off until the rapture happens this is a call to stand fast to hold to the truth and he says now also though May our Lord Jesus Christ himself comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. So who's doing the work? Jesus Christ. He's going to establish us. Paul says that the return of Christ should be comforting us. We should be looking at the return of Christ as something that brings us peace and comfort, not something that brings us fear. Chapter three, as he's kind of getting into his home stretch, he says, finally, brethren, Pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men for not all have faith. Guys, would you pray for us that the word of God will continue to be as effective in the lives of other people as it has been in your, your hearts. Verse three, but the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one and we have confidence in the Lord concerning you both that you do and will do the things we command you. He says, listen, you know, pray that the word goes out, pray that God is working with power, but don't forget that the Lord is faithful. The power of the gospel does not hinge on our ability. It does not hinge on our anything. It hinges on the fact that the Lord is faithful. He will establish us and he will guard us. Are you, are you weak? Are you ready to topple over? The Lord can establish you. Are you vulnerable? The Lord can guard you. Verse five, he says, now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. Your heart is never meant to be followed. It is meant to be directed. Your heart is meant to be steered. It is something that you tell it where to go. You do not go where it tells you. Verse six, He says, but we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly 
and not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. And remember, chapter 3 is in context of chapter 2, which is the return of Christ. So, because Christ is returning, we command you, brethren, to be careful about hanging out with disorderly Christians, with unruly Christians, with Christians who are always picking a fight. That just doesn't need to be our MO. That doesn't need to be our goal. And, and, and also beware of hanging out with lazy Christians. Christianity should drive us to be the best workers in the world because we are doing everything for the glory of Christ. Jesus Christ can be glorified in any act of obedience. And so anything we do, any job, any occupation can be for the glory of Christ and so we can do it diligently as unto the Lord. And Paul says, you know how you ought to follow us. Paul is really careful to, say, to not say, hey, here's a good concept for you to follow. He says, hey, here's an example for you to follow. He says, when we were with you, we did not, we weren't disorderly, and we didn't eat anyone's bread free of charge, but we worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Paul says, we, we were very deliberate when we came to you, when we were starting this church, to make sure that you did not get a messed up idea of how ministry works, and to make sure that you did not see Christianity as an opportunity for someone to be lazy and call it ministry. We worked with toil and labor night and day. And he says in verse nine, not because we don't have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. So this is important. He, he puts a qualifying statement. It's not because we didn't have authority. There is authority in the context of ministry for someone to receive a salary, okay? It is not wrong for the pastor of a church to receive a salary from the church. Right? The church is, is sort of collectively coming together and saying we are asking you to help disciple us. We understand that takes time and effort and so we are willing to sort of foot the bill, if you will. But Paul says, yeah, I could have done that, but I didn't because I wanted to really make sure that you understood that Christianity is not an opportunity for somebody to be lazy and call it service to the Lord. So Paul was self-employed. Paul was a bivocational pastor and so it is not wrong for a, for a pastor to receive a salary from a church. It's not wrong for a pastor to receive his whole salary from the church. And, and you know, especially in some context, depending on just the structure and, and the, you know, maybe the size of the church or the logistics, sometimes you have to have people who are there full-time in terms of they are just always at the church to help out with things because things are always happening. That's not wrong, okay? That's, that's, not, that's not wrong in the context of a church, but there's also a immense privilege and an immense blessing that comes when a church is able to function like Paul's describing. That's how this church functions. Nobody in this church gets paid. We are, we have like just in the last year, I think I can say this, just in the last year, the church started paying for its own trash service because up until that point, we had people in the church who said, you know what? Church doesn't need to pay for a trash service. I'll take the trash home with me. And it got to where it was, you know, a lot of trash. And so we said, you know what? We'll pay for our own trash service. But um, but nobody in this church receives a salary and what that does is a couple things that are really important, okay? Is one, it keeps us all on a very equal playing field. Nobody in this church is the man in charge. There is, there's an authority structure, right? And it's definitely not me. Uh, 
there's an authority structure. There's a, there's a sort of, a, there is a list of, if, you know, if there's a, a sequence of how decisions are made, okay? But it's, it's not this idea of, well, I'm the boss, and so I get to make the call, right? I'm the guy who, uh, you know, who you're paying to make the decisions, so I'm going to make the decisions. That doesn't happen. The flip side that I think is no less significant is that we collectively, as the body, never say, well, that's what we pay you to do because we're not paying anybody to do it, right? If something needs to happen in the church, if, if meals need to get put together or if somebody needs to get visited in the hospital or something needs to be you know, a time of prayer or a time of discipleship for somebody, nobody ever says in this church, that's what we pay the pastor for because you're not paying the pastor, right? What happens in this church as a result is people... If there's a need, guess what? Meet it, right? You are free to do it. There's, a, there's, a, there's an openness in how this church is able to meet people's needs because nobody is getting paid. It's just the idea of, you know what? Hey, we're all working hard. We're all working our jobs. We're all coming here to fellowship and worship and study the word of God together. We're all doing the same thing because we're all full-time ministers, Right? We are all doing the work of the kingdom of God. And so it doesn't matter where the paycheck comes from. But if we're all getting our paycheck from somewhere outside the church, then we come to church and there's a sense of let's all recharge collectively. Let's build each other up. Let's do this thing for real as a family. And that's what Paul's encouraging this church to. And he says in verse 10, For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but our busybodies. This happens in the church. This happens in, you know, quote-unquote full-time ministry. This happens in missions work. Uh, happens just in general. As you get people who are like, you know, I'm serving the Lord, but I've got to save my energy in case the Lord calls me to something really big. So I'm working on saying no to all the things that are distracting me. So sorry, I can't help out with that. But if you're serving lunch... I'm there. There are people who just want to bum off of the church, right? They want to use the church as a means to get a free meal or a, an easy salary or a light workload. And Paul says that is not the function of the church. And he says, let me just sum it up really simply for you guys. If you don't work, you don't eat. It's sort of a, you know, pass-fail test here. And so he says, we're exhorting the church, and in the context, again, go back. You always had to go back in Thessalonians. Because Jesus is coming back. Because Christ is returning, work diligently. Do not be a busybody. Be busy about your father's business. Don't be busy, you know, messing with other people's business. In verse 12, he says, Now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. Pack your own lunch and work hard, Paul's saying. Do not, do not, don't be lazy. Work diligently. Work quietly. You do not have to be a busybody. You don't have to be gossiping while you're working. You can just do your work as unto the Lord, and that's good. Verse 13, he says, But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. So, so, so if you're reading that and you're like, I don't think I'm being a busybody, and, and you're getting this like hyper guilt trip, I don't know. This verse is for you. Don't grow weary in doing good. If you're doing good and you're getting weary, Paul says don't. In Galatians, he says, for in due season, you will reap. 
You plant seeds in the ground, you pick up weights and you put them back down, you know what happens? Things grow. You know how fast they grow? Not very, right? Not very. I mean, it's just like, are you kidding me? Right? Like you look, at, you look at your plants and you look at your weeds and you're like, this is just not fair. Like surely we could start raising this instead. Um, things grow slowly. And Paul says, hey, don't grow weary because you're going to reap. There's a harvest coming. This, this is one of the, the realities of the Christian life. If you are in good soil and you are being watered by the word of God, you will bear fruit. A healthy tree cannot help bearing fruit. It just happens, right? If you're in good soil and you're being watered, you are going to bear fruit. It's a promise from the Lord and from the word of God. Some of us bear fruit really slowly. Some of us, you know, it's like oak trees. I think they have acorns like every 10 years or something. It's ridiculous. And when they, when they let go, I mean, they're cutting loose. I mean, there's, a, you're, you know, there's thousands and thousands and thousands. And then it'll be another decade. And some of us just, we kind of bear fruit slow. That's fine. But in due season, you will reap. You will bear fruit as a Christian. So don't grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, he goes on, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. If you run into somebody who is being a lazy Christian, give him kind of a wide, you know, a wide margin. You don't want to be associated with laziness. You also don't want their laziness to influence you. But Paul is careful to say that doesn't mean you blow them off for the rest of their life. It means you, hey, say, hey, bug. That is not appropriate behavior for a Christian. Why don't you step it up? Why don't you live like this matters? Why don't you live like Christ is returning? Why don't you live like you can do all things as unto the Lord? In verse 16, he says, Now, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. And the salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. So he evidently would dictate the letters and then assign it himself. Verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Paul starts the letter. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He ends the letter and says, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always and in every way. The peace we're after as Christians is not an earthly peace. Earthly peace you get by, you know, finding a hot date or a new drug or a better form of liquor. And it always runs out. And it always leaves you just a little bit emptier than it did before, right? The peace of God is received we don't manufacture it, we receive it. Paul says, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace. Always and in every way. And then he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. He starts with grace and peace. And he ends with peace and grace. Because it always, always comes back around to the grace of our Lord. Who loved us as sinners, who died for us, who saved us, who gave us his Holy Spirit and who also gave us his peace. And so we're not troubled by the coming of Christ or by the rise of the Antichrist or by the falling away. We're not troubled. We're comforted because our king is still our king. He's still on the throne. He's still in control. 
And so with that, Paul wraps up his letter to the Thessalonians. Next week, we're going to start the pastoral epistles, which is going to be a blast. Paul's writing them to Timothy and Titus, and they are specific exhortations to pastors in the church, but they are full of exhortation for the entire church because they're written to full-time ministers, which means they are applicable to all of us, right? So there we go. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the comfort that we have from it, the comfort of knowing that you are in control, that you are still working, you are still executing your plan, and nothing can stop it. God, we pray that we would be surrendered to your will, that like Paul said, we would continue to grow and increase and abound, that we would know you more, more fully, more completely, more truthfully. God, we pray that you would broaden our ability to comprehend. We want to be in fellowship with you. We pray that you would have your way with us, God. Fill us up with your Holy Spirit. We thank you that he's with us. Guide us and lead us by your word. We thank you that you've given it to us. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our King, that we pray, amen.